Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show designed to help you communicate with power and become unstoppable on your path from hidden genius to influential leader. We know you have what it takes to reach your full potential, and that's why each and every week we share with you interviews and strategies to help you transform your life by helping you unlock your X factor. Whether you're in sales, leadership, medicine, building client relationships, or looking for love, we got what you need. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. Did you know that you could get the entire Art of Charm back catalog? That's 15 years of podcasts featuring expert guests and those information-packed toolbox episodes when you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. That's right. All of our episodes are unlocked ad-free and in our entire back catalog of almost 900 episodes are available when you join Stitcher Premium. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Welcome back. Let's kick off today's show. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Today we're speaking with Dr. Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She's also the author of the new book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. The book comes with a ton of praise from high places, including Adam Grant, who we interviewed on our show several times. In her book, Dr. Bonds argues that we don't need to gain influence in order to get what we want, that we already have enough of it, we're just not using it mindfully. So we're excited to talk to her today about her thoughts on influence and persuasion, as well as all of these great scientific studies that we love. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bonds. So we'd love to kick things off just first with what drew your interest into learning more about influence, the influence we have, and, and how to grow it. Yeah, you know, I, I had this experience in grad school where I had to ask people to fill out surveys and go down to Penn Station every day and walk up to strangers, you know, scared little grad student and say, will you fill out a survey? And it was traumatic seems kind of dramatic to say, but it really did feel kind of traumatic to do this thing. And it was, first of all, fascinating to me that that was so distressing to me. But then the biggest thing that I learned from that is that, in fact, like everything that I thought would happen in my head, you know, any yelling or rejection and all of that, you know, it didn't really happen as much as I expected. And people were so much more willing to agree to do things for me than I thought and so much kinder in their responses than I expected. And so when I was doing this, I was working with a professor at Columbia, Frank Flynn, and we kind of were looking at something else, but kind of moved in the direction of like, maybe that's the discovery. I wonder if other people would be similarly surprised by, you know, essentially how much more influence you have by this simple thing, like asking for something than we tend to think. Well, I know for us and all the work that we've done with our clients over the years, we've certainly felt the same way. Many of our clients come to us saying, how can I grow my influence, not realizing how much influence they already have inside. And just some simple strategies can really change the way people perceive you, and you can start to see that response and that influence back firsthand. And what really struck us about the start of the book was just how off we are about our own influence in the world around us and the assumptions we make about others and how influential they are. So what were some of the surprising findings, obviously from your graduate school journey to writing this book, around the influence that we already have. Yeah, so that, you know, following that journey, we sort of have tested that out with other people. And now we've had people ask 15,000 strangers for things, which is kind of wild when I think of the number. And so that general sort of phenomenon of people are more willing to do things for us 
than we think seems to be really robust and really kind of incredibly surprising even to me. Um, we've even had people ask to do things like vandalize library books and unethical or weird or quirky things. And it, we still get the same effect. You know, people say yes more than we think. Um, but that, you know, after studying that for over a decade now, I also started to see similar themes in other people's research. So for example, Erica Boothby is this amazing researcher at Wharton, and she's done some fascinating findings or has some fascinating findings where she shows that people pay attention to us more than we think. So we tend to think that, you know, we're kind of walking through the world and what she refers to as an invisibility cloak. So you can imagine like you have your headphones on, you have sunglasses on, you're like walking through the park, sitting on the subway, kind of feeling very obscure. Um, and in fact, people are looking at you more than you tend to think. Uh, and part of that is because when you see someone and they catch your eye, they look away really quickly, right? And so we think like, oh, you know, that person caught me looking at them when in fact, they're just as likely to have caught, you know, you're just as likely to have caught them looking at you. And then some other things that she's found are things like something called the liking gap. So after an interaction with another person, if you say how you, how much you think the other person liked you, and then she goes and asks that other person, okay, how much did you like that person? How much did you enjoy that conversation? We also underestimate how much other people like us, which based on Bob Chalnidi's work is really a precursor to having influence. Um, and then she and I teamed up and we did some really cool studies where we had people go up and compliment people. And again, we get this finding. We ask people how good will this compliment make someone feel? Then we ask people how good did it actually make you feel? And once again, people underestimate the power of their words and our kind words basically land on people heavier and in that case more positively than we tend to think. You've said so much there and through our work and through your book, there is so much to pick through. So I, I think to set this up, I think the best place is to uh, let our audience know here how we tend to overestimate our own abilities, but yet when it comes to us comparing and contrasting with other people, we tend, we tend to underestimate ourselves. And I think that sets up the, the two sides of why this work that you've done is so brilliant. But it also suggests our own limiting beliefs towards ourselves and, and where the disconnect between the two are. Because I think a lot of people, if they tend to overestimate themselves, they don't see their limit, their limitations. If they realize that they underestimated themselves to, with other people involved, then they would start to be more comfortable with seeing the constraints they've put on themselves. Yeah. And you really, you make an important point, which is that sort of long list that I just gave of all these ways in which we underestimate our influence is particularly surprising because as you said, there's this other, you know, long list of domains where people overestimate themselves and think that they're less biased than, than other people, think that they're more moral than other people, and even funny things like think that they're better than average drivers, right? Better drivers than other people. Uh, and so in sort of contrast to that, we see this effect in the influence world. And when those two things kind of interact, you can have some problematic behaviors. So if I think that I'm less biased than you and more moral than you, but I also think you're not listening to me and you're going to push back more than you actually are. I might shout at you, right, to get my point across. And what's interesting and confounding about it is we've all been in a situation where we've tripped or stumbled. We feel flush and we feel like the world is watching us and we're so embarrassed and that like pang of embarrassment is on us. But when we're going about our daily lives, we don't feel that anyone is watching us. So why in those moments of actual embarrassment do we feel this panic that everyone is watching us, but then in our normal day-to-day, -day, we don't necessarily feel that way? Yeah, this is another sort of fascinating pair of effects. And in the end, when you take them together, it's such an optimistic story. 
So the first that you're referring to where we just really think everyone's paying attention to the things that we're most embarrassed about was done by my colleague Tom Gilovich, and he has something called the spotlight effect. And it's basically the idea that when we're, you know, having a bad hair day or when we're acutely self-conscious about what we're wearing, maybe we're like trying a new style or something, we think everybody's looking at us. And he's actually tested this out using things like clothing. He had people wear a Barry Manilow concert t-shirt. You know, now people are like, well, what's wrong with that? That'd be like hip and cool and retro. But (laughs) back then they pre-tested it and it was really embarrassing. And he asked people, how many people in this room do you think noticed what you were wearing? And then he asked the actual people in a room, how many of you actually noticed what was on this other participant's t-shirt? And people tended to overestimate the number of people who were paying attention to their embarrassing T-shirt, right? So the conclusion was that when we're sort of super self-conscious about something, we feel like we're in the spotlight. Everyone's looking at that. But the interesting thing that Erica Boothby's research adds in the invisibility cloak is that more often we're not acutely self-conscious, right? More often we're just going about our daily lives, you know, we're wearing our ordinary clothes or taking our route to work. And in those cases, people are paying attention to you more than you might realize. And in that way, you can have this impact. People are noticing whether you're wearing a mask when you walk into the supermarket. You know, people are noticing that shirt that you've had forever, but they think it's really cute and now they want to go and find it, you know. So there are all these ways in which we are impacting people in our ordinary lives, but not usually not as much when we're super self-conscious about something. I think there's also something to say about the level to which you're being seen as processed by other people. I certainly, I love people watching. I live on practically on the strip of Vegas. I walk the strip many times a week for fun to observe, to watch people. But yet there's not going to be very many people who stuck out in my mind if I had to come home and start writing who I've seen unless I'm making that mental note to process those sites. Yeah, that's I mean, that's probably true. The interesting thing is that if you are one of those people and you're walking down the street, right, there's a whole bunch of people who are noticing you. It's not just you. You may not notice everybody or remember everybody. But as you're sort of walking down the strip, you're probably like, ah, you know, I'm just blending into the crowd. No one's really paying attention to me. Another place, you know, that I think is really relevant to another sort of context is, for example, in an audience or even in a meeting where someone's giving a presentation, you kind of have that audience dynamic and you have the speaker or the entertainer dynamic. And when you're in the audience and you're kind of looking up at someone on the stage or maybe they have a microphone or maybe they have their PowerPoint presentation, you know, it feels like they're the ones with all the power and influence in that room. When in fact, you know, for any of us who have been in that position, whether it's just standing up and presenting in a meeting, you are acutely aware of everybody else in the room, right? So the audience feels invisible, but you are you were sort of tuning in to every little facial expression and that person who's nodding along. And so, in fact, that also means that the audience has this impact that we kind of shape the things we say to get them to nod a little bit more. You know, comedians will shape their bits to like get them to laugh a little bit more. And so there's also this element of your people are paying more attention to you when you're in the audience as well than we tend to think. And I think with Zoom, now we've actually been able to peer behind that looking glass more than ever before. So speaking on stage definitely can see the audience, but a lot of times they're dimmed and they feel like they can get away with eating or being on their phone or making a little bit of noise. But now we're all looking at a video screen and we're starting to see ourselves get caught in Zoom meetings of like, oh, I shouldn't be eating. Oh, it's distracting. Now we're ever more aware as an audience member, but we're not always thinking about how we're shaping the delivery of what's being shared. And I know for Johnny and I in teaching our programs over the last 10 years, we would call it our laboratory because there was so much audience interaction that shaped how we delivered the message. We're looking for those light bulb moments as we deliver these concepts to know that our students, our clients are actually getting something out of the program because no speaker wants to be on stage talking to a deadpan audience and, and feel like they have no impact whatsoever. Yeah, I love that. And it, in the end, so many of us who don't 
think that we're comedians are basically like comedians shaping our material, right? You're like, you know, comedians like throw out the bits and Seinfeld has these jokes about like, you know, I don't decide what's funny. You guys are the ones who decide what's funny. It's the same for you guys, right? It's like, we don't decide what works. You guys tell us what works basically as we test it out. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Stop. Tired of inconsistent results? Are you dating who you want to be dating? Are you where you want to be in your career? Do you have a proper roadmap to get you to where you want to go? If you're tired of wasting time and tired of seeing other people effortlessly build their dream lives while you work twice as hard with fewer results to show for it, perhaps it's time to get the guidance, skills, and accountability you need to reach that next level. In our X-Factor Accelerator, you'll develop the tools to communicate powerfully, cultivate unstoppable confidence, and be held accountable by a community of high-value members, mentors, and coaches. Now, this is no ordinary community or group. Each member has been hand-selected and vetted to make sure that your experience is a prosperous one. That's right, AJ. Our members are driven, knowledgeable, dedicated to advancing their lives and the lives of the X-Factor community. They are CEOs, professionals, entrepreneurs, and servicemen. So come join the fun. If implementing concepts from this show has enhanced your life, imagine what a year-long mentorship in the X-Factor Accelerator could do for you. Unlock your own X-Factor and become extraordinary. Apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. You can find the link in the show notes. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. It's been fun to see comedians in in big cities like Comedy Cellar in New York. You can see these comedians testing out their material, and a lot of it doesn't make it on the Netflix special that everyone watches because the audience doesn't react. The audience doesn't give them what they're looking for that moment. And that's what's so important to realize that even sitting in an audience, passively listening, we're shaping the message right before us. Yeah. Now, when it comes to now understanding that there are all these times that we underestimate our influence, what can we do practically to start to recognize our influence and overcome these limiting beliefs that we have about ourselves? Yeah, so there are a few things and they kind of come from the place of why we underestimate our influence in a lot of these cases. So one reason is that basically, you know, because we're human, we're looking at the world through our own two eyes. And that means that we see everything that's happening around us. We see the people who are doing things that impact us. We see the people who are doing things that are impacting one another. But the big missing piece when we look out at the world is ourselves. We don't see the things we're doing, the facial expressions we're making that people are reacting to, you know, potentially the space we're taking up in a particular scene. And so that's one reason we don't really see the way we are shaping the way other people are interacting with us and the impact that we have. And so one sort of practical thing is to find ways to get out of your own head and try to sort of visualize a scene as a third party observer. And so you can do that in a number of ways. You can imagine like, okay, what if this was on a TV show and I was looking at it on a screen and I was one of the characters? You know, what if I was recounting this to a friend or a friend was watching this and giving me feedback? I was talking to this person who works with coaches and I love us because coaches are so into tape. Like they want to show their players tape and try to improve their performance, right? But they sort of turned it around in this in this training session for coaches and they taped the coaches so that they could see what they were doing that their players were then responding to. And I just love that idea, even if you can't tape yourself, but thinking as if I was going to tape myself, what ways am I impacting the situation? So that's one thing. We're shaking our head because that's exactly what we've been doing with our clients. So in In training and teaching small talk and conversation skills, many of us don't realize how we are fully perceived, the body language signals that we're sending, and how it can change the tone of a conversation. And we just finished a boot camp in Las Vegas this weekend, and our clients had to go through the video work exercise. And when you first go through it, it's a little nerve-wracking because now you're like, oh, I'm going to see all the things that I'm doing wrong. In actuality, when we play the video back, they see all the things that they were doing right and ways that they were having great body language and impacting the conversation in a meaningful way. Seeing the other person light up and react to those gestures, the smile, the eye contact, all the signals that we clue in on. And what's fun is 
once you have a better representation of who you are and how you show up in the world, a lot of that worry, that concern, that anxiety wanes. And you can actually just focus on being in the moment, present, becoming a better listener. Yeah, I, I just love that so much. And, you know, it also kind of works with this idea I like to get across, which is that we have an idea of what influence is. It's like standing up on the pulpit and making this grand speech and like trying to really convince someone of something. But influence is all these little things, like the facial expressions you make, the little offhand comments, you know, a laugh or a smile and the way that you interact with people in these very subtle and formal ways. Those also impact people sometimes even more than those moments when you're really trying to influence them. And so actually showing people video like that to show like, look at all these little things you're doing that are impacting people. I just, I love that. And what's interesting about that is for those people, there's, there's a lot of folks who are uncomfortable with being in the spotlight. So therefore they're going to try to do whatever they can to to keep from the spotlight being turned on them. So maybe make themselves smaller. Uh, their, body, uh, their, their tonality gets quieter. They're trying not to be seen. But that has the direct opposite effect because, because that is influencing that room in another direction. It is pushing people away rather than attracting people. And for us, it's to get our our clients and our listeners to understand that just because you're not the loudest person in the room doesn't mean that you're not affecting how others are thinking and feeling in those moments. And if you want to be somebody who is adding value, then you have to take time to put out actions and behaviors that influence people in the proper way. Because being the quiet person or the, the person who's, who's hiding, as I said, it has that opposite effect. It makes people uncomfortable. I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, that's it's interesting because I often talk about the, the fact that even if you don't say anything, even if you're just sitting there in the audience, you are impacting the room. You know, think about when you're talking and you're kind of out of the corner of your eye, keep looking at this person who's like looking down or not paying attention or, you know, like you said, like curling up into a ball. Like that is impacting the things that the people around you are discussing and the way they're discussing them. And so in some ways that's empowering because it means that simply showing up to a discussion means that you actually can make a difference just being there, representing yourself or groups that you want to represent, even if you don't want to speak up, even if you're super introverted, just showing up matters. But I love this other part as well, right? That you could also be unintentionally influencing this discussion in ways you'd rather not be. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. And you mentioned in the book that you are an introvert and part of what you do in speaking at colleges and, and on stages is there's the stage moment, which as an introvert myself, I've rehearsed it. I know exactly what I'm going to say. I know what works and doesn't work with my material from the laboratory. So I feel really confident in that moment. But there is that before and after where we're in the one-on-one -on -one moments where it is a little tense. It can be a little anxiety-inducing. So what have you done personally to put yourself in a better position to feel confident and comfortable in those environments when you know going in as an introvert, it's going to be a little uncomfortable for you? And that's exactly how I feel as well. It's funny because people think if you're an introvert that you are really scared of getting up on stage or performing or, you know, doing a talk. And it's true. You wind up practicing that so much, especially if you're an introvert. I mean, for me, I over practice it so that it's actually not that scary. It becomes like very sort of rehearsed and OK. And I have my props, you know, but it's those those little informal interactions where you don't know what someone's going to say and you're worried that you're going to say something stupid or, you know, talk too much or not talk enough or ask a weird question or not have the answer. And I really, you know, the biggest thing that has helped me is really to remind myself of this research that does show that we come across better than we think, right? Because I am the kind of person who will leave a meeting and obsess about that stupid thing I said. And I now know, based on Erica Boothby's research on the Lichen Gap, that I'm not alone, that most of us do this, and introverts do it even more, it turns out, where we focus on that thing that we feel really self-conscious about, that no one else noticed and no one else is paying attention to. And in fact, the other person just has this holistic view of that conversation and sort of the warmth that was conveyed. You know, it's not about the, saying the perfect thing or talking the perfect amount of time. It's like, were you warm and friendly? That's really what people take away from a conversation. And that's why we focus on body language signals in the work that we do so much. Nice warm eye contact, a nod like you're doing on video, smile back, lets the, the person that you're speaking to know that you are engaged, you are interested, even if you may have a faux pas here or there. And what I find so interesting is we all have the liking gap, which means when two introverts are interacting, they're more likely to focus on their own fallibles, the own things that they did wrong in the situation. So they can't possibly be paying attention to the other person's issues. And we see this time and time again, we'll play back the video and our client will be like really dwelling on, oh, I didn't say this properly or this joke didn't really land. And then you watch the interaction in totality and there was no response. It was completely invisible to the other person because they were also a bit in their head, also worried about that liking gap. Well, it's also a very freeing feeling to be focused on the things that actually matter and detach and unchaining yourself from the, the thoughts that have nothing to do with how the other person felt about you. And when you're lying awake in bed because 
there, here's another date that you went on that didn't went out, didn't work out so well, and you couldn't figure out what did you say wrong this time, when in actuality had nothing to do with what you were saying. It was your presence. It was how you allow the other person to feel in that date. And if you're continuously in your head thinking about what to say next and what's the, what's the joke, you're not present. That is making the other person feel awkward. They're mirroring your behaviors and actions that are not present. And, and here we have people focus on, on the wrong thing. Absolutely. You know, and one thing I talk about is we get so hung up on, oh, I used this one wrong word or I stumbled over my words or whatever it is when people just don't care about that stuff. They care about the gist. Like, were you generally friendly? Did you talk about sort of in general some topics I was interested in, you know, or the topics that I was bringing up? Did you respond to that? So it really is just not about these little tiny things that we think are super important. And then, you know, what's interesting, it's not even just about these individual interactions, but the things that you're talking about, nodding, showing that you're listening, sometimes these are called micro affirmations. And so they're even great for sort of helping with inequality issues, right? Because the more that we can show other people micro affirmations and kind of show people that we're listening to them and include them in conversations, the better, not just for us and for those individual interactions, but also for inclusiveness. You talk about saying the wrong things, and obviously now with the rise of cancel culture and, and people feeling like if they say the wrong thing, they could lose their career, they could lose their livelihood, and they could essentially lose their social networks because of it. Yet you argue in the book, a lot of this is misplaced concern because we all are making mistakes, we're all human. So how can we get a little bit more comfortable being genuine and expressing ourselves when we're seeing this backlash in the media and this pressure more than ever to say the perfect thing at the perfect moment? Yeah, and I do, you know, I like to sort of have the caveat that it's not that words don't matter. Words matter, of course. But at the same time, it's not always the words we think, right? It's more, a lot of it is the intent and how we're talking about something and our willingness to engage in a conversation. And at the end of the day, people just aren't going to jump down your throat as much as we tend to think. That's particularly true in person. It turns out there are huge social barriers to actually calling somebody out in person. And in fact, there is this default that we all have where if someone says something, you know, we assume that they're coming at this thing, you know, with genuine good intent that whatever they're saying is probably factual for the most part. You know, most of the things we talk about are not hardcore political conversations, right? The kinds of things you think about when you think of cancel culture. You know, you're not going to have a conversation with someone and bring up like the five most sort of difficult things to talk about. For the most part, even if you talk about things in a clumsy way, people are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. And I think keeping that in mind and coming to a conversation genuinely is one of the best sort of pieces of advice. Yeah, well, there's also... a. When it comes to institutions, there's a lot more politics involved. There's people fighting for hierarchical positions. And and there's so much more behind the scenes. By the time that we see it on Twitter or on the news, it's been so sensationalized and people are talking about it for weeks that those exceptions are they they're burnt into our minds and they they haunt us in our own conversations. It's it, but it's important to remember that there's so much more going on than what we're seeing when, when it comes out on the news. And actions matter. So it's not just about words. With cancel culture, it's the actions. It's the, the behavior over time that may be represented with a gotcha moment or a misspoken word, but the behaviors and actions behind it are often what lead people to distrust us, to not want to work with us. So what you talked about brings the next caveat, right? So I feel like it almost lays the groundwork for sociopaths to get ahead because we come into situations feeling like, oh, this person definitely has the best intentions. Why would I not trust this person? They mean well. And it does give people who could wield their influence in negative ways an advantage. So how do we counter the, the bullshitters, the people who do want to use their power and influence against us if we're going into situations being more trusting more often than not? 
it does have that caveat for sure. And I think one domain where you see that really clearly is this domain of social engineering. So we often think of hackers who are going to hack into your account as people who are like typing at their keyboard, trying to hack into your password, you know, with all this complex coding. But in fact, a lot of hackers practice social engineering, which is basically getting you to just reveal the information to get into your account because they convince you that they are someone that they're not. And all the same things we've been talking about, as you noted, you know, this tendency to trust other people, to not want to call someone out and call them a liar, right? All that keeps us from sort of questioning when someone says, you know, I need to get into your account for this legitimate sounding reason. Can you just give me your password and your date of birth and your social security number or whatever it is? And so there are these spectacular cases. Kevin Mitnick is one where he basically would call up people and, you know, come up with these elaborate excuses. Like he'd check the weather and there'd be a snowstorm and he'd say, okay, you know, I'm working from home. He'd call someone up at, at Motorola and say, I'm working from home because of the snowstorm. I don't have my password. Could you just, you know, give me yours essentially through a whole, you know, rigmarole of, of additional sort of points in that story. And people would eventually just give it to him or send him this confidential data that is not supposed to be sent to people outside of a company. And so, I mean, part of it is that there is training in those kinds of cases, right, against this kind of social engineering approach, but being prepared for it and recognizing that it's hard for us to call people out on this is, is helpful. I want to add to that. And it's not just other people who are going to ask us these questions and hope to get the information that they're looking for. You see it on social media all the time. That I mean, they're programming their own software to work better, but they're also learning about us. There's a new phenomenon on Facebook that I've been seeing repeated lately, which is post your favorite artist's name in the comments below and see if they return a message. You, I'm like, and it's all of these, uh, anon accounts that to me, that are not really going to anything, but yet people feel the need to post their favorite artist because, well, who doesn't want the attention of their favorite artist who's looking at this thread? But you're giving them the information that helps their machines, but also understand what you like so they can give you more of it so you engage even more. Totally. I have a friend who posted, and I don't know if this is a meme going around or if it was just his thing, but it was like, okay, new game. What was your pet's name growing up? What number would you choose if you could pick any number? And what non-numerical symbol would you choose if you could pick any? It's basically like, you know, everybody's password <laughs> in the world. Thanks for the password, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing to keep in mind about social engineers. They also condition us to believe that they'll get all the information from one source. When in actuality, all they need is little tiny bits of information from everyone on the team to assemble that to get the full password, to get the phone number they're after, the information. So we now understand that in face-to-face -face interactions, we're less likely to call people out. We're also less likely to just say no. And you touched on this a little bit earlier in some of the work you did that drew you into this, but we've seen this phenomenon time and time again with our clients. One of the biggest fears they come to us with is rejection, whether that be on a date, whether that be socially, or even asking for a raise or a promotion at work. I don't want to hear no. No is like the scariest word in the world. And one of the exercises we would do while out is say, okay, the goal is for you to get a no. So instead of focusing on getting a yes, the goal is to get a no. Go out and collect five no's. And I'll never forget, we were out one night and one of our clients came back holding a, a car key. And he said, I did the no challenge and this guy just handed me the key to his 911. And we're like, wait, wait, that wasn't the challenge. So you're supposed to get no's. But he now realized that in face-to-face -face interactions, we very often won't hear no. We'll anticipate a negative reaction. We'll anticipate the worst thing in the world. And then we can ask the guy sitting next to us at the bar, hey, can I borrow your car? He can look at us, knowing us for 30 seconds, feel trusting and say, yeah, sure, take it, take it for a spin. I hope you know how to drive a stick. So why is it that there's this fear embedded in us and how can we work to counter it to really get that promotion, to get the date, to get what we really would like? Yeah, it's funny. So 
this fear of no is huge, right? This fear of rejection and it's evolutionary, right? If we we're social creatures, a no is like being distanced or cast out of the group, right? Being rejected socially. So it's not surprising that it would be so painful. We also tend to attribute that no to things like ourselves, like, oh, they said no because it's something about me or the relationship. They said no because we're not really as close as I thought we were or the thing we're asking, right? They said no because I shouldn't be asking for this thing. And in fact, most no's are circumstantial. Most no's are I can't do this right now because I don't have time or, you know, I'm not an expert in this or I just don't have the money for this right now or whatever it might be. And the interesting thing, as you said, we're so focused on the rejection, that fear of rejection that we forget that it's actually really hard to be the one doing the rejecting, right? And it involves all the same things. So when you reject someone, you're pushing them away, right? You want you don't want to damage a social connection, just like you don't want to be rejected and think a social connection is damaged. You don't want to be the one damaging a social connection, insinuating something negative about the other person. It's super awkward and uncomfortable to say no. And so as you kind of said, like people are less likely to say no, even to these crazy requests. And we've shown this as well in our studies, right? Then we tend to think when they do, it's a lot harder than we tend to realize. We think that people just find it pretty easy to say no. So we have studies where we ask people who have been rejected romantically, how easy was it that for that person to reject you? They think it was pretty easy. But then we ask the other person, they're like, that was really hard to say no. You know, it's it actually took a lot. And I sort of had to cope with everything afterwards. Yeah. And so I think the one big thing is, of course, recognizing that our fears are pretty unfounded, that in most cases, you know, people are probably more inclined to say yes to us than we realize. And then not attributing that no to something about us or something about the relationship and remembering that it probably is circumstantial. The no is easier over email. The no is easier digitally than it is in person. And there was a study in the the book that I found really fascinating around unattractive hypothetical people and their interest in you versus unattractive real people and their interest in you. And the results were pretty striking. So if if they were told ahead of time in the study that these are hypothetical people, then the rejection would be pretty much a given. No, I'm not attracted to them. But if they were told that there's a real person behind this profile, it shot up 20%. So it was like 17% to 37% would uh, not be rejected. So why is it that it's in the situation of us actually knowing that there's another person's feelings behind it in these situations, even in dating, where we might find ourselves saying yes to things that we don't actually mean, which could have really negative consequences for us? Yeah, I, you know, I love that study. It's so funny because they pre-tested these photos to make sure they were like clearly unattractive people. I kind of feel bad for the people <laughs> in the studies. Um, but, and then they show them to participants. And as you said, you know, they, they knew people for the most part wouldn't want to date these people because they had pre-tested it. And when it was hypothetical, they were like, yeah, no. But when it was a real person, they didn't want to hurt someone's feelings, right? They felt really bad about it. And other research shows that actually people will, in fact, agree to go out with people they don't actually want to go out with because it's harder to say no. And that then we get into sort of this tricky situation, right, where one person's asking and they feel like someone could easily say no. And if they do say yes, that they must be really interested Whereas another person may feel like they're just kind of going along with it, that they feel too bad to say no. And then things get even trickier if there's sort of power dynamics, if it's someone you work with, you know, and then um, that can actually be kind of problematic. Yeah, the power dynamics section was really interesting because many of us who are in a position of power don't realize the compounding effects of the influence that we have. So when we're making requests of people who have a lower position in the power hierarchy than us, that comes up even more so. Like the the regret, the function of saying no carries much greater consequences. And you will see this with awkward advances at work. You will see this with requests that are just really downright mean or demeaning of the people who work under you, but they can't have the constitution to say no to those requests because not only do we want to save face with humans, but also there's a power dynamic. There's an impact to us saying no to these requests. And we've all been on the receiving end of a horrible boss 
who doesn't realize the influence that they wield and the fact that they're putting us in these positions. So if you are a listener and you find yourself in a situation where you need to say no, but there is that power dynamic, what does the science show and and how can we overcome that influence that's working against us? Yeah, and it's so true. It's so much harder to say no if someone's in a position of power. But as we all know, it's it's hard to say no to lots of things. You know, people asking us to deal with situations we don't feel like dealing with at work or, you know, committees we don't want to sit on or whatever it might be. And so the research does show, as we sort of noted before, that face-to-face on the spot is the hardest time to say no, right? In the moment, it's really hard to come up with the words We don't want to hurt someone's feelings. We don't want to make the relationship uncomfortable or damage the relationship in any way. And so we want to come up with sort of a nice way to say it, but we might not be able to in the moment. And so often we'll default to just agreeing, right? Because that's the easier path. It's actually easier. And the research shows that if you're kind of just reacting mindlessly, like if someone asked to cut in line and you're not really paying attention, we're just like, sure, yeah. You know, because no is actually the harder thing to do. And so... One big suggestion is to get through that in-person immediate moment, get through it without saying yes or no, right? So you don't actually have to say no and get someone to follow up over email where you can think about what you want to say. You're not put on the spot. You don't have to say no to someone's face. So that could be a really helpful thing. And then my colleagues and I have been playing around with this idea of no and. So you know how improv has yes and? Yes and. We love this idea of instead of, you know, people think of like, no, but, but that's like, doesn't have sort of the same ring. No, and like, no, I can't do this. And I'm still going to solve your problem in some way, especially with a boss. This can be helpful, right? And maybe I'll even create value for someone else. So you want me to do this thing. I really don't have, you know, I have too much on my plate. I can't do it right now. But I do know of this junior person who might jump at this idea. And so I'm going to solve your problem and I give this to somebody else. And I'm not going to feel bad about it because I'm doing a no and, right? I'm creating value for like people over there. So I, I kind of love that idea as well. I think this goes back to us discussing the rejection theory of getting a no as well. The more you hear it, you get desensitized by it, and it doesn't carry its effect. And also, in hearing the no, that you realize there's not much coming after that other than that was it. That was the whole thing. And we tend to, certainly in power dynamics, it's going to have a whole other component to it, but we tend to sensationalize what's going to happen in getting that no and make it out a lot worse than it, than it needs to be. And how do we detach ourselves from that? By, by getting as many no's as possible and sensitizing ourselves. I'd say also, just to add to that, that we show that in our studies, that once you get a no, as I said, you tend to attribute it to something about you or that relationship with that person. And so because of that, you think, I can't go to that person anymore with further future requests, right? We think like if I ask them for something again, they're going to say no again because they're just the type of person who says no or they don't like me as much as I thought. In fact, when we have people follow up with someone after they get a no, they're more likely to say yes the second time because they feel so bad about saying no the first time. So if you still need something later, you can go back to that person. And if we just totally blow up this no and make it so, you know, distressing that we'll never go back to that person. We miss that opportunity of of going back and asking them something else. Now, there's another part of the book around courage and how we view our own courage versus the, the courage of others. Could you unpack the science? Because it's such an interesting topic, as I know many of us like to think of ourselves as bold or courageous, or sometimes we like to think of ourselves as fearful and, and others are more courageous. So what does the science actually show around our belief in our own courage? So one of the things is the series of studies that basically ask people, what would you do in a scenario where you saw someone make an inappropriate comment? Right. Maybe they uh, make a comment that could be interpreted as harassment. Maybe they make a comment that could be racist in some way or just inappropriate in some way. What would you do? Right. And most people say, well, obviously, I'd be really angry and I would speak up. I would say something. I would intervene when they actually put people in these situations and they actually do this. Right. So they've actually constructed these scenarios where they have a group of people and they have someone make a comment that's inappropriate or racist and they look at what people actually do. And in fact, those people don't actually say anything. For the most part, most people say they would say something, but most people don't. 
And instead of saying that they are, instead of feeling angry like they expect to feel, in those situations, people often feel afraid. So we think that we're going to be sort of more courageous and emboldened to speak up in some of those situations than we actually are. And I think the fascinating part about that is when we place judgment on those who were in the room in those moments and attribute yourself to being more courageous and you would have spoke up, how could they let this happen? Why did they stand by? But this bystander effect is real. We see it all the time, whether it's someone injured on the street, where we in thinking about it, theoretically, hypothetically, we'll say, yeah, of course I would jump to their rescue. Of course I would stand up. I would never stand for that. But in those moments, that saving face and the fear of the the pressure of standing up is overwhelming. And oftentimes we will cower in those moments. So we need to have compassion for ourselves, understanding that we may feel that we will do it. We may not always show up in a way that we would like. And we also need to have compassion for others who are in those moments who are going through that exact same feeling and and can't stand up or find the courage to speak up. I think to add to that as well is for a lot of people, they feel that they're going to get taken advantage of if they're soft, if they're showing that empathy. And so it's a stiff upper lip just to get through the day because they're so focused on so many other things. And that certainly makes it difficult for connection as well. Yeah. And I also think there's more ambiguity in real world situations than we tend to think when we imagine them. You know, we think, well, clearly, especially after the fact, you know, people explain what happened. You're like, oh, clearly that was wrong. In the moment, you're like, did that person really mean that? Like, did I just hear what I really thought I heard? And then, you know, if you do speak up and you're wrong, that's super embarrassing, something that we really don't want to risk, you know, being embarrassed. So there's a lot there that sort of prevents us from speaking up in the moment. And I love this point about, you know, being empathetic to people who don't. We should get better about it. But at the same time, when people don't, it's not that they don't want to, but there's so many other things going on. And people really need training to be able to do it better. Last part of the book that I want to touch on that I I found really fascinating is the compounding impact of influence outside of just your direct sphere. So we often think of influence just the impact we're having one-to-one in a conversation like this. But then that influence that you have multiplies because that message is carried on. And you mentioned the solar roof panels that they've found clusters where one person in the neighborhood will get a solar panel and then they can, through satellite imagery, see the neighborhood is now getting solar panels. So oftentimes when we downplay our influence, we're thinking it in a one-to-one ratio. We're looking at how we're influencing the people around us, not even thinking about the compounding impact that influence has on changing behaviors of friends of friends and friends of friends of friends and so on and so forth. So I thought that was a really powerful way to to look at influence. Even if you don't think of yourself as very influential currently, you are wielding a lot more influence than you think. That's exactly right. And this is my colleague, Bob Frank here at Cornell, actually does this research and he calls it indirect influence. So, you know, you may do something, for example, with the solar panels, right? I may think about installing a solar panel because I want to reduce my own carbon footprint. And I'm thinking in terms of my impact on the environment, right? Just kind of tunnel vision, focus on what I can do. But as we were talking about earlier, people walking by, right? Your neighbors are paying attention to you more than you think as you're just kind of doing this thing and focused on your own thing. They wonder what's going on in your decision making, right? They're curious they start sort of simulating that themselves. They're like, oh, I wonder why they're doing that. Maybe they're doing it to save money. Maybe they're doing it for this. Maybe it's a good idea. And all of a sudden, they're halfway there to making that decision, right? And now you do, as you you said, have these clusters of neighborhoods where a bunch of people have put up solar panels. And so just your own individual decision to do something can really have these bigger impacts. And one person, you know, can make a tiny dent. But now that you've had, you know, a whole neighborhood that's shifted. Now you've made a really big sort of impact. I know in researching this book and and some of the interviews you've given, you're quite often asked, you know, what was the most surprising finding? The question that I have is, what do you think are some of the biggest myths around influence that people have that the science just completely debunks? Because when we talk about influence, you'll hear a lot of things that just aren't based in science and a lot of beliefs of ways that people think they're being influential, but they're really having no impact. What really stood out to you in that category? I think there's definitely this impression that influence is this very concerted effort to change someone's mind. And that if you've had influence, 
you're going to see a shift right there in front of you. Someone's going to, you know, start changing their behavior immediately. Someone's going to tell you, oh, I concede that argument. I now I see things totally differently. And I do think that we have this idea in our heads that that is what influence looks like. And then we get frustrated if we do try to shift someone's behavior, if we do try to shift someone's attitude and we don't seem we don't get that sort of immediate gratification. But in fact, so much influence happens in this delayed, cumulative way, right? We're just one part of shifting someone's behavior, one part of changing their attitude. Sometimes people don't even want us to know that we've influenced them, right? Like kids and their parents. How many things do you like remember that your parents have said to you that you you would never tell them are impacting you? And so I think that that is one reason we underestimate our influence, right? Is because we have this idea it's going to look a certain way. But in fact, influence is more subtle than that. And that doesn't mean we're not having a big impact. And people aren't thinking about our words, you know, weeks and months and years later. It allows you to focus and strengthen yourself, your own convictions, your own ideas, how you want to operate, what, how do you want other people to see you, rather than going into a room and being reactive to everybody else and trying to figure out, as you mentioned, on a one-on-one basis, influence them in a certain manner. If you're happy and you're having the time of your life, and you are attracting people who want to meet you, well, everyone on us in that room is going to be looking of what is that person doing to warrant such attention? And how do I copy those behaviors? And so the best thing is to be focusing. Why I love self-development so much is because when you are focusing on yourself and you are strengthening your character, you naturally become more influential in the way that you want to be. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think, you know, that's part of making sure that you use your influence in a positive way is just putting those positive vibes out there, behaving in the way you want other people to behave and sort of being confident that other people do notice that, right? And they do then mimic that and they do like you for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Our last question we ask every guest is, what is your X factor? What is it that you believe makes you extraordinary? You know, I think it is my introversion, strangely. I think that I wouldn't have noticed or been so compelled by so many of the findings that I talk about in the book if I wasn't so deeply introverted and sort of needed those things so much. And I think that that has really allowed me to spread that word and reassure other people as well. Well, I would love all of our introverts, extroverts, and ambiverts in the audience to read this book because it is a huge confidence boost when you start to see the small effects that you have on a day-to-day basis and all of your relationships and the influence that you bring to the table, maybe without even realizing it. And I know it's easy to try to chase the latest tactic or strategy or become someone you're not, but the more you can look inward and see what you already bring to the table and highlight those strengths, the greater impact we all have. So thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed the book. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you, Vanessa. Johnny, I know going through that book and all of the science that she and her team pulled together was a fascinating look, reaffirming a lot of what we teach inside of our X Factor Accelerator program. Absolutely. And the science behind the asking for questions and rejection therapy, we have been using a lot of those concepts for years, and it's nice to see the data to why it works so well. It was a fun conversation, and I can't wait to have Dr. Bonds back. Now, this week's shout-out goes to Tony. He writes in, I'm writing my first resume since I joined the Army back in 2006. Admittedly, it's a nerve-wracking experience, and it's getting my perfectionism anxiety at an all-time high. But just wanted to thank the team for giving me the confidence to enter the private sector and assisting my developing of soft skills to be successful wherever I go. I'm literally putting down the Art of Charm podcast and boot camp under my interest section to show that I now have the necessary soft skills to succeed. Thanks, AJ and Johnny, for helping me gain the confidence to do something like that. You got to love it. When you're walking out on a plank into a brand new world, there's nothing like the confidence to know you have what it takes. And I want everyone to know we are here to support you in your career development like Tony. If you're ready to take things to the next level, apply for X Factor Accelerator. We have weekly coaching calls in there to help you when it comes to resume building, growing your network or social capital, and of course, developing that social life that we all deserve. 
Head on over to unlockyourxfactor.com to apply today. Send us your questions at questions at theartofcharm.com or find us on social media at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all fine platforms. Before we go, could you do us and the entire team here a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate this show. It would really mean the world to us, and it helps us get fantastic guests like Dr. Bonds. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Until next week, I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Go out there and crush it. 